What's one three? My biotech. This is Jeff, and we're on How It's Meant Today, the podcast where we chat with people like Dr. Neil Magikar, people who shape the future of health tech, biotech, and how we heal people overall. Neil, after that absolutely horrid introduction, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, quite quite ashamed of that. What's one three in my biotech? That was not good. Um, but um, glad to have you on today. That was really bad. Um, um, you know, the first question that we always ask our guests is, you know, how they are. But really, the main thing that we'd like to get across is like who you are. So, apart from being the CEO and co-founder of One Three Biotech, which we'll get into a little bit later on, uh, how did you get to the academic and, uh, I guess, professional position that you are in now? Love to hear about that. Yeah, I know it's a it's a happy to kind of go through it. You know, I wish it was a straight path, but it sadly wasn't. And to be fair, maybe okay. it was a little more interesting that way. Um, yeah, so I started off, you know, many years ago, um, you know, joining a PhD program at Cornell University's med school, so Wild Cornell. It was a tri-institutional PhD program uh, between Cornell's med school, uh, Cornell's graduate school in Ithaca, and Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Um, and I was very, very interested in kind of cancer drug discovery, right? How do you find new treatments for the cancer subtypes that there really aren't any treatments to after I've lost a family member to a similar type of cancer? I'm sorry. Um, and, you know, at that time, Cornell was just opening up its precision medicine center, which was the U.S.'s first precision medicine center. It was, you know, a really exciting opportunity to kind of be at the intersection of drug discovery, genetics, precision medicine, and then kind of oncology patient care. So, you know, I jumped at that opportunity and got a chance to kind of really be involved in that. Um, so while there, what my research really focused on throughout my entire PhD was how can you build AI systems that enable us to better understand cancer biology? And the goal is if you better understand cancer biology, you can not only better understand what drugs may or may not work, but you can also find new treatments for patients that don't have it. Um, fast forward kind of a couple of years, got saw a lot of like early stage proof of concept coming out. My side is seeing the technologies we were building, actually helping patients and finding new drugs and working on diseases that really there weren't any ways to work on. Um, mm -hmm. and hit this really interesting moment near the end of my PhD where we were like, we want to build this, but we don't really know how, um, we don't really know like how we, you know, I never thought about myself as starting a company, um, first time entrepreneurs are nothing I was super familiar with, but. Um, the more and more we started talking to pharma partners and biotechs, they were like, this could be really helpful. So I took the plunge and was like, let's learn about kind of startup world. Um, luckily, at that same time, Cornell Tech has this program called the Runway Incubator Program, uh, which is essentially a way where they take PhDs um, and give them the training and resources needed to go from a PhD to a CEO. So I had a chance to kind of work through that system, got a little bit of startup capital, um, and really incubated one three biotech out of that. Um, since then, you know, we've been able to raise some institutional VC funding. I've grown our team to about ten people, um, and now we're just kind of off to the races. So hopefully, that provides a little bit of context on kind of what I'm working on. That is a that is like that's a that's a story that seems to involve a whole lot of your previous context and just knowing the the right resources tap so you're able to get to where you are right now notwithstanding your talent itself but what drove you to pursue that research path because 
I mean, on this podcast, we've talked with so many people who are physicians, who are business people, but not that many PhDs. So why the PhD path at first? Yeah, that's really interesting. So I, you know, if you talked to me many, many years ago, I probably would have told you when I was a child that I actually wanted to be a physician. I wanted to kind of treat, um, you know, going to patient treatment. But what I learned throughout kind of undergrad and really after seeing my own family member kind of um, suffer through cancer treatment was that, you know, the most interesting part to me was not necessarily the treatment aspect, but it was the uh, understanding aspect, right? I've always loved puzzles growing up. Um, and to me, kind of like biology is like the world's greatest unsolved puzzle, right? We still barely know what's happening in a regular, you know, human body. Now, when you add things like cancer and disease, we, we know even less. Um, and I got a chance while I was an undergrad to kind of work on some of the early genetics projects and kind of see kind of firsthand how the intersection of, you know, science and kind of mathematics and computer science were enabling us to solve problems that, you know, really we had gone unanswered, right? The genomics and genetics revolution. And I think all of those kind of coalescing made me realize that the interesting part of medicine to me wasn't necessarily patient treatment, even though I think that's obviously very interesting. It was more <laughs> giving physicians the tools they need to do the best patient treatment, right? Finding those treatments, finding those routes, finding those treatment opportunities so that the oncologists around the world had more drugs and more treatments than their arsenal. Um, so that's really what excited me about it. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately kind of caused the shift to go into a PhD rather than kind of an MD or something similar. Um, and then, as you said, right, like once I was in the PhD, uh, as many dominoes kind of slowly falling together that led to, you know, now where I'm at at 1.3. Yeah, that's okay. There, there are several directions that I could go, but the one direction that I'll go first is, I mean, you, there's this bio of you on the Cornell website that talks a little bit about how you discovered a drug in preclinical trials and how that led you down your path. Can you tell me a little bit about that story? Because that seems pretty inspirational and discovering a drug is by no means an inexpensive or non-involved process at all. So it must have been an arduous process. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So this is a, you know, a process we did with a pod, right? So one of the yeah. technologies we worked on at Cornell was enabling us. So one of the things about drugs is a lot of the drugs that are, you know, working on patient treatment right now, you know, we really just don't quite know how they work, right? Like a lot of drugs <laughs> hit things in the green body that we don't really understand. Um, so we were working with this company on this drug called Ong Tua One. Ong Tua One was um, a drug that is shown some moderate anti-cancer efficacy, but we were still really trying to figure out how did this drug actually kill cancer? What was it going on? Um, so using our technology in partnership with this company, what we were able to figure out was that this compound hit a target that we had never really thought about as an anti-cancer target, it hit dopamine receptor 2. Um, so a little bit of background, right? Dopamine receptor 2 is involved in the dopamine signaling pathway, but back when we found this, no one really thought about the dopamine signaling pathway as a way to treat cancer. Yeah, but the, yeah, but the platform we were building kind of showed that this compound hit dopamine receptor two, dopamine receptor two had this anti-cancer activity. Um, and then furthermore, what our platform was able to find was that that signaling pathway was very, very relevant in a particular type of cancer, particular hmm. type of glioblastoma uh, called H3K27 methylated glioblastoma, which is a type of brain cancer um, with a certain methylation pattern that is highly aggressive. Right. So, yep. you know, when you have that brain cancer, you know, life expectancies are lower, has like high pediatric occurrence, and there aren't really any great treatments out there for that type of cancer. Um, but yep. our platform was saying that 
DLD2, dopamine receptor 2, and therefore this compound would work very well there. Um, so fast forward, um, had the opportunity to kind of partner with that company and run a phase two clinical trial in that patient population. Um, it's also pretty overwhelming results, right? We're seeing patients' life expectancy increase from like, three to six months to many have been stable disease free for over two years. Um, this compound is now moving into phase three tests to kind of cement itself as a, as a novel treatment option for this rare patient population. So, uh, it was really interesting, right? It was the opportunity. It was kind of like, we were just trying to focus on solving problems, right? The first was. Well, how does this drug work? The second is now that we know does this drug work, what's the best way to make it work? And then what are the patients um, that we can use to, to kind of build off of? So um, it was it was a really exciting opportunity. And now, like we're, as we're seeing, you know, for instance, uh, excuse me, the real effect of it on patients, it's, it's hugely rewarding. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. So I, I am going to talk about drug discovery later on in this conversation for sure, but what I do want to understand or what I want perhaps you to tell your, the audience is a little bit about why you think those dominoes fell. Was it the location? Was it the people that you met or the networking that you tried to do? Like what set you up or what do you think contributed to the dominoes falling the way that they did so that you are where you are today from that starting point in the involvement with that glioblastoma drug? Yeah, no, it's a great idea. Uh, of course. So I think the green by summer drugs one area, but I think in general, I think the dominoes falling the way they were, it's it kind of mentorship from the people around me, right? I had a unique opportunity to work with, you know, my professor at the time, Dr. Olivia Lamento, who's kind of a, a, a juggernaut in the field of computational drug discovery, right? He's director of precision medicine, Cornell's precision medicine program. To kind of see that emerge, right? Kind of get mentorship and kind of see firsthand how you can solve problems. I think that was invaluable. Um, I think just the way the world was working, right, in a couple of years ago, right, where you saw, you know, biological data emerging in ways that previously hadn't been possible. You saw a similar emergence in new technology and computing activities. I think all these kind of coalesced to make a really interesting time and space where someone like myself could get more involved in drug discovery, right? Someone who mm -hmm. doesn't come, you know, I wasn't doing traditional experimental research. I was doing computational work. Uh, so that was really exciting. And I think Similarly, there's been kind of a trend for many, many decades about pharma and generally the world understanding that drug discovery is a, a challenging thing. Um, so yeah. what that means is that, excuse me, uh, what that means is that because it's a very challenging thing, you know, there hasn't been a lot of development in, and there hasn't been a lot of developments along with, there haven't been a lot of kind of dramatic improvements and success, right? discovery rates and success rates are still relatively low. Um, and they already have been over the past decade. So do you have the numbers? Yeah. So I think right now, um, if you guess, right, the people will tell you anywhere from, uh, one to 3% of drugs that go into, you know, development activities end up making it through. So you see failure rates That's anywhere wild. from 90 to 99%. Um, people will tell you it costs anywhere from a couple hundred million to billions of dollars to develop a drug. Um, and those numbers are only getting more and more expensive. So yeah, I think the world was realizing we need to do something to fix this problem. There was yeah. kind of a confluence of different technologies and kind of, I was lucky enough to have people who gave me the time and space to really work on these things and I'm developing further. So like what, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> no, that, that's pretty much it. Um, yeah, just really, I, I think that, that's it. I like what really let me kind of do it. So, I mean, I, I think there, I mean, your, 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 your talent in different fields and the fact that you're at a confluence 
of the right place, right time with different fields coming together and the mentorship really helped. But I mean, I know that you're in the New York East coast area where there are a lot, there has been a lot of investment traditionally in biotech, if I'm not incorrect. So if you were to speak to somebody younger, who's interested in the same fields, who wants to bring different fields uh, into drug development, or perhaps work in the same field of the computational design component or trying to simplify or perhaps improve the means by which we discover drugs, do you think it's worth moving to those biotech hubs or is, is just working at a university and connecting with people from a distance sufficient? I don't think it's necessarily, I don't think you need to be in these hubs, um, especially nowadays. Right? If you had asked me maybe two, three yeah. years ago, I would have said yes. Um, it might be worth it. Right? And I think there are, there's just an, you're in like an epicenter, right? So places like New York, Boston, San Francisco, right? Where there's, you know, a confluence of different universities. So let me just take New York, for example, right? New York, mm -hmm. think about the universities, right? You have Cornell's Medical School, you have Columbia, you have NYU, Sinai, Albert Einstein, right? So many kind of great medical universities and hospitals so close to each other that you have an opportunity to interact with kind of experts in the field all over the place, right? You can, you know, if I wanted to talk to one of the leading breast cancer oncologists, right? There's almost certainly one within a 20 minute subway from where I am. Mm -hmm. um, and those people tend to go to similar networking events. So you have an opportunity to kind of really speak to the best people in the field. Um, and, you know, companies that areas like New York, Boston, and SF are putting a lot of money to building out biotech ecosystems. Like New York has a few different biotech hubs here. Um, Boston, of course, has giant biotech infrastructure. And then SF, you're seeing a lot, lot more venture capital money come get. So I think, you know, in that sense, right, if you're looking for like an experimental job, but right, most, a lot of the labs are here and a lot of the companies are here. So yes. I will say nowadays we have seen, and I have personally seen a lot more biotechs becoming remote from the virtual. you know, uh -huh. um, you know, for instance, we have employees all over the country right now, not every employee is based in New York and a lot of the New York biotechs I know are doing the same thing. Um, some roles are of course are better suited for that, right? If you are running yeah. experimental studies, you have to be where the lab is, but if you're kind of yeah. on the business side or the strategy side it might be able to be easier to be virtual. Um, but yeah, I think it's like, I don't think it's necessary. I think it certainly would make the networking piece easier, but if you're comfortable networking, if you start meeting the right people, you know, there's no, it's by no means do you have to be around the hubs. Um, and I don't expect that trend to only grow in the coming years. So if you ask me, I expect that if you ask me in two years, I will say even more strongly, you can live wherever you want. Um, because that's the way I've seen it over the last two years. Mm -hmm. So you, you dropped a little tidbit about VCs being interested in biotech and there definitely was that trend that occurred during the pandemic. There's so much investment in healthcare overall, because I mean, it was on the front of everyone's head and to be frank, it's still on the front of everyone's brain, albeit with different attitudes. So I guess given, given that I'm going to steer away from that spicy topic, uh, given that, um, I guess overall, why, why would VCs or other investments, investment groups choose to put money into uh, into pharma or drug development, knowing how risky it is with that one to three percent success rate. Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. Um, uh, excuse me, I think it it really just depends on how you think about it, right? It is incredibly uh, difficult, so to speak. Difficult is maybe like a way to think about it as in the sense of um, you know, there's there's low rates of success, but it's also yeah. kind of if you can do it correctly, there's huge opportunities for both growth and value creation, both on the patient side and the commercial side, right? A mm -hmm. successful drug can make pharma hundreds of millions to billions of dollars a year. 
So I think VCs have also realized that there's an opportunity there. Um, and also, I think what COVID showed us is that there's no ignoring it, right? Like, yeah, biotech problems and health problems are only growing, right? COVID is yeah. you know, infections is an example of one, but it's silly to think that in our lifetime there won't be other major things that where biotech has to step up. Um, so I, the question is like, you know, they're already building these infrastructures. Like, if we can make it better, you know, there's a huge need and there's an opportunity to kind of have transformational impact on patients' lives and on kind of investors as well. So I think VCs are seeing a little bit of both, but also I think like new tools, right? Like AI is an example, but also new bioengineering tools, synthetic biology tools. Like these are the types of things that are making bio a little bit more tractable. It's not like I'm putting all of it on a highly risky bed. It's I'm trying to understand it a little bit more better. I'm trying to, you know, make it so it's not an all or nothing understanding. I'm trying to kind of use technology to bridge that gap a little. Um, so I think there's a little bit of, excuse me, a little bit of both you're seeing, which is, you know, um, biotech is coming from one direction and uh, yep. they're improving. And then VCs are kind of seeing that and seeing like there's an opportunity to be able to get really involved here. Mm -hmm. And see, that that's a fascinating perspective because um, in Canada, we have a struggle with uh, turning government innovation dollars into actual innovation companies that spin off and are able to scale and provide value to the lives of millions of patients or billions of patients worldwide. So why did you take that step off the path into the startup realm? Um, whereas in Canada, we would have had that some attitude from some groups pushing back against, you know, going to the dark side. Yeah. I think it's, you know, I think it's, it's, it's I understand that, right? Because I think in academia, yeah. it's also this, at least used to be this idea of like, if you're moving up the academic path, you're going to the dark side. But I think it's like, uh, it, it's, a, it's a silly way to think of pharma and biotech and startups as the dark side, right? Like we need, they both need each other, right? Academia and kind of academic medicine has the opportunity to answer certain questions in a certain way that biotech and industry doesn't, right? But also yeah. industry and biotech have the opportunity to re the resources to do the questions that academics could, right? Like, you know, um, I love my time at Cornell. We found a lot of really interesting things, but we don't have the resources to take a completely novel drug target all the way through development into phase one, two, three, and trials and finally to approval, right? That, Mm -hmm. requires resources, requires infrastructure that just doesn't make a lot of sense for a university, but that infrastructure that you can get within kind of a biotech ecosystem. Um, so I think it's also like, what is the goal you're trying to solve? Like to us, as always, we want to be focused on the end goal. We really want to, um, excuse me, think about how we can develop this in such a way that it actually can have a transformational impact on patients. And to us, it made biotech made the best sense to do that. A startup made the most sense to do that. Um, and I think across the world, you're seeing more and more startup interaction. Like you're seeing, you know, a lot of biotech startups now are becoming, for lack of a better word, more ethical or moral conscious, right? You're seeing mm -hmm. kind of public benefit corporations come out. You're seeing companies um, partnering with patients. You're seeing companies thinking about what they partner and that's kind of a big thought on drug pricing. So my hope is that in the next couple of years, we see this dark side mentality wear off a little bit, but it's just, you know, I think everyone has to understand that there are certain problems built for one industry that don't make sense for others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, I mean, that leads itself uh, fairly well into discussion about partnerships. When we chatted offline previously, you, you really harped on the fact that partnerships are so important and that finding the right complementary partnerships is important. So how do you find the partnerships that fit best for you? And why are partnerships, you know, so important in the work that you do? 
Yeah, I think it's, 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 it's a great question, right? So I think thinking about partners, it's also, once again, it's that same sort of idea of like, the, what can you do, right? Like as an early stage drug discovery company, where we are focused on as completely novel ways to target certain rare cancer subtypes, right? So let's say we find a new way to target lung cancer, for instance. Yeah. Developing a drug is a multi-step, multi-year process, right? And for instance, it's, um, you know, only a, a handful of companies around the world have the resources to do all those steps. And those companies are usually the giant pharma companies, right? So for mm -hmm. us, you know, we will need the partner to say like, how do we actually develop the chemistry against it? How do we manufacture it? How do we run these clinical trials? Um, and it makes sense to kind of work with experts, right? Just like we are good at that early stage of discovery, it makes sense to work with companies who are great at what they do and to kind of build a efficient drug discovery pipeline that way. Um, and similarly, companies that are looking for new ways to revitalize their pipeline partner with us. Um, so for instance, we have a partnership with a company, um, in the oncology space where they are looking for really to understand new disease biology in a way that they have it, right? And that's what we yeah. focalize on. So it's like this opportunity allows them to leverage our technology and expertise and similarly us to leverage their, you know, developmental expertise and then long-term resources. So I think it's this, this mm -hmm. kind of a synergistic marriage there, just like, you know, you focus on one thing, I focus on the other together. We're going to build it. Yeah. So I'm going to talk or I'm, I'm going to transition this in a couple of minutes into a conversation about drug discovery, because that's such a complicated and fascinating topic that I mean, you know, it is so interesting to learn about, but where in this story overall, does the Forbes 30 under 30 fit into this? Um, yeah, no, it's a good question, right? So the Forbes study at 30 happened when I was in grad school, right? Based on yeah. some of this work I was doing in glioblastoma. Um, it was completely unexpected, right? I did not know it was happening. I found out because one of my friends sent me a congratulations message and I was like, congratulations for what? That's a way to um, find so out. That was the level of involved. Yeah. Um, it was really interesting. It was really cool. And I think the Forbes 20 and 30 experience kind of showed me a part of the world I wasn't looking at, right? So for instance, I had been in science academic medicine, research, all of my life. Never really been exposed to the business investor side of the world. But mm -hmm. what the Forbes acknowledgement gave me a opportunity to do is really uh, tell my science to more people. I, I went to conferences, I met people and they were like, what do you do? And I started to talk about it a little bit more. I learned, met people from who were doing amazing things in completely other areas, right? I met amazing tech founders. I met amazing bankers, investors, social impact. Um, you know, founders, CEOs, et cetera. And so I had to learn a little bit more that, you know, everything we're doing felt connected one way, right? It's like, oh, the problems yeah. I'm facing actually aren't so different from the problems these people are facing, right? Um, the more I understood about investors and banking and kind of finance, the more I understood like, oh, maybe this is something we can do together. So I, as you know, I, it gave me the courage and the insight to kind of make that leap into, I'm going from science into startups. Okay. All right. All right. All right. So that's, that's, that's an easy layup. Thank you very much into what is one, three biotech. Yeah. Um, yeah. The stuff I think about it is we are an early stage drug discovery company. Yeah. Right. So what we do is we, uh, develop computational technologies. We develop kind of an AI system that allows us to essentially think about simulate cancer. So we take a cancer, we take a bunch of data on cancer patients, treatments, et cetera. Um, all of that information comes together and what our, we've developed kind of computational algorithms that say, like, let's take all this data and understand what is causing cancer to work the way it works. And when mm -hmm. I know this information, how will cancer respond to treatment one versus treatment two versus treatment three? 
let's say you're able to do all of this, right? What we can then mm-hmm. do is say, we know lung cancer is driven by this gene and this drug may hit that gene. Based on all this information, if that drug and gene are unknown, that's a new treatment opportunity, right? We can then go and say like, this is a completely novel way to target lung cancer that no one else knows. So then what 1.3 does is based on those predictions is tries to develop those programs. So we say, we're going to go out and actually test that target. We'll go actually test that drug. Um, if it works, then we're going to continue testing it further and then look to partner with people. So if you think about all of the cancer drugs that are out there, what 1.3 is trying to do is trying to find that next generation of cancer drugs. So what are the next treatments that we don't even know about that, you know, five, 10 years from now can be drugs that are treating and helping patients around the world. Okay. And. Where does the, where does the AI fit into this? Because that whole delving into literature, finding out which genes are there and what treatments are already there and what the next possible treatment could be, that's something that could be done through a literature review. So does the AI help in terms of helping parse out which drugs are good candidates or, uh, in, in finding what perhaps the novel targets are, or is that top secret? Uh, it's not top secret. It's, it's, I think about it this way, right? It's, um. Yes, you can do it through, you can think about it, maybe you can do it through literature, but the amount of papers that get published, let's just say, let's take literature, for example, right? Let's say a thousand papers get published a month, right? Which is probably an underassessment, right? Um, in a certain type of cancer, right? So you have tens of thousands of papers a year. No scientist can possibly read all of them. And you each can't? Paper, yeah, exactly, right? And each paper has thousands of pieces of information hidden under, right? We published a paper. Um, a few years ago, which was on a particular type of cancer, yeah. we had hundreds of, uh, spreadsheets attached with just different pieces of information. So what the AI does is it basically takes all of that different information that's in all of the papers out there, but also in all the other databases, right? You know, all of the data that the NCI National Cancer Institute is putting out, all the data the NIH is putting out, all the data that the FDA is putting out, builds it all together and tries to find patterns within that data. Right. So for okay. instance, it tries to say that, you know, this is a silly example, but let's say, um, the AI will find that whenever imatinib is used against lung cancer cells, um, the certain genetic pathway tends to be overexpressed. Right? So this is just a simple example, right? Sure. But when imatinib is used against breast cancer cells, it doesn't tend to be overexpressed. What that tells us is there's some connection between this pathway, lung cancer, and imatinib. Right. And you can kind of deconvolute that. So it finds those patterns. And then the more you try and understand those patterns, the more you can find completely novel things. Right. Maybe the reason this is happening in lung cancer is because lung cancer relies on a gene or target involved in the matinee that breast cancer doesn't. Um, silly example, but you can kind of get the idea of like, you're finding these high level patterns, you're diving in a little bit deeper and then you're kind of understand. So for instance, let's just take the, the dopamine receptor story. What we were able to do is we took all of the data we had on different cancer subtypes and predicted based on that, what are the most important genes? And what we found was we were able to find a pattern. Based on that pattern, we were able to predict that this type of glioblastoma, if it lost DRD2, that type of glioblastoma would die. Right? Whereas a lot of other cancer types, if they lost the DRD2, they might not die. What this mm-hmm. told us is you know, we were able to find a pattern between certain genes that are lost and cancer cell death, apply that to find a new gene that if lost would kill glioblastoma. And since we already knew that this drug hit that gene, therefore we can say, okay, this drug hits DRD2. If DRD2 is lost, glioblastoma dies. Therefore this drug should work on glioblastoma. 
So it allows us mm -hmm. to find that information and really understand wow. it in a way that we previously couldn't. That's, that's fascinating because I, I've done some breeding in the drug discovery space, but some of those companies have largely focused on taking a target receptor and identifying different ways that small molecule molecules can bind to them. So that's a completely different uh, means of deploying AI. Whereas you're like one step, I guess, behind that, not in terms of your progress, but in terms of identifying the receptor that needs to be targeted in order to target a cancer in a different way. Am I correct? Exactly. No, you're exactly right. Um, so I think there's, there's a two different ways of thinking about it. There's the biology problem and there's the chemistry problem, right? So let's yeah. say you already know the gene you're trying to hit. Then it's a biological question of how can you find the drug that actually is going to actually bind in there, right? You're seeing a ton of companies out there really focused on the chemistry side of the world there. Um, versus what we're doing on the biology side of things is like, let's, what's the next drug out there? Um, what's the next target out there, right? So for instance, yeah. you know, there's a, let's say a target called like MEC, right? MEC is a common cancer target that people know if you hit it, you can have three activity. People are still trying to discover better chemicals to hit. But what we're trying, and that's the chemistry side of the world. What we're trying to solve is what is the next mech, right? Eventually we're going to find a chemical that hits mech and that's going to treat subset of cancers. But there's going to be another subset of cancers that need a different target. Uh, or you have to hit mech and something else at the same time. So let's understand that so that when we can give that information to chemists, they can design better drugs. So I view it as you try and understand the biology, find a target. Then you try and build chemistry against that biology. You develop that chemistry, right? That's the traditional way. Sometimes people switch it where they take a bunch of chemistry, see what works, and then try and find the target off of it. But um, yeah. traditionally, I would say it's biology, chemistry development. We really focus on the biology piece of the world. That's fascinating. Wow. Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give us a little bit time to break down the the drug development, uh, you know, process. Even though it's gonna take a little, a very short amount of time and we'll probably butcher the entire thing or only talk about it at a very high level. So I apologize for those who are in the drug development world out there. Um, but so we've already talked about, you know, either target or drug identification as part of the initial drug discovery portion. What's the next step once the, once the target and the drug are optimized or identified? What happens next before we go to clinical trials? Yeah, so let's say this First is testing, right? So let's say that you have, yeah. a, let's say you have a target, you have a drug that hits that target, right? The first thing you want to prove is you want to prove that hitting that target is going to have the effect you want. Let's say for cancer, right? You want to prove that if you hit that target and lung cancer, lung cancer cell, most often you're looking at for like whether they die or not. So that's the first test you do. Then you want to understand that even if the lung cancer cells die, you're not going to cause side effects in the patient, right? So mm -hmm. the first thing you do is kind of you look at different experimental studies, you do animal tests and you try to understand, is this drug hitting this target going to be efficacious? So it's going to work. And is it going to be non-toxic or safe? Mm -hmm. Let's say you're able to solve all those things, right? You figure out it kills lung cancer in mice and it doesn't cause side effects in mouse. mice. Cool. Step one. The next Maybe. thing you want to know is like, before you put it in humans, there's a bunch of tests you need to know, right? The FDA is going to want to know like, how quickly is this drug metabolized by the human body, right? Like, how can you make it? What's the method of delivery? Is it a pill? Is it an injection? Is it IV? You figure all of that out, right? Let's say you like, okay, you have this docket. You're like, it's a safe drug. It's efficacious. Here's all the information on that drug. And here's how we're going to give it to humans. The next step is the, especially the clinical trials process. So phase one, two, and three. Now, uh, this is going to be very, very broad. So, so traditionally the goal of a phase one trial is to figure out 
is it safe and what's the maximum dose I can give to patients before I have to worry about toxicity, right? So I can give patients this many milligrams of the drug without causing severe effects. Cool. Phase two is then you want to say, does that maximum dose actually have the effect I want it to have? So in cancer, maybe it could be slow cancer cell growth, reduces tumor size, increases overall survival. Depends on the, the treatment you're looking at. And then phase three, it's kind of a combination of phase one and phase two in a much bigger patient population, right? So phase one might be, you know, 10 to 50 patients. Phase two might be 50 to 100. Phase three, you're probably looking at hundreds to thousands of patients. I mean, you monitor them over a much longer time to basically say, like, here's confirmation it's working. Here's confirmation it's safe. Here's where I'm looking long term, right? So that's really like the clinical trial development process. And at the end of all of that, fingers crossed everything works. You can then have a drug that gets approved, and then you can start kind of actually prescribing it to patients outside of a clinical trial setting. Wow. And uh, if we flash back to several minutes before in this conversation, that takes hundreds of millions to billions of dollars in how many years? Ah, uh, depends, right? So people will say anywhere from 10 to 15 years, from start to finish. 10 to 15 years from pre-clinical approval. Yeah. Um, if you include all the things like testing it in cells and testing it in the animals, you're probably easily looking at that, you know, 10 years. I think the goal now with companies like ours is to reduce that, right? So we can have something that goes, you know, a lot, there's been a lot of talk about going from target to compound um, within a year, which would be a massive improvement. And then you'll probably like, you know, hopefully you can bring it under the 10 year mark. Mm -hmm. So how long does that target to compound normally take now? I'd say anywhere from five to eight years, right? Like normally wow. it's a crazy long process because like not only, and it also depends on where it's done, right? I think in pharma, yeah. depending on if it's a well-known target, it can be a little bit shorter. If it's a completely novel target, it's different, uh, much longer, but also you have to think about just things fail along the way. So it's a, it's a very, it's by no means a short and easy process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, I mean, failure must be a huge cost in this process overall in terms of years invested as well as money invested overall and that five-fold to eight-fold reduction in terms of, uh, I guess, target to actual drug is, is a massive improvement that not only can end up number one, saving more patient lives as the drug gets on shelves faster, but also saves patent years for companies, which is really, really important if they want to maintain their IP. Am I correct? Yeah. So maybe say a little bit of that. that yeah. So it's like, um. Can you repeat the question one more time? You broke up a little in the middle there. Oh, no, no worries. So the, the main benefits for that reduction in time from drug identification and refinement, so targeted drug ident identification, um, the main benefits would be um, getting them on shelves faster, which then downstream would result in the drug being available to patients, more patient lives being saved, and as a result, or also on the other side, um, the drugs uh, being on patent longer for the companies, which means that they're able to bring in revenue while they're on patent so that they're able to reinvest some of those profits in R&D as well. Am I correct? Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. Um, yeah, so like, you know, drugs traditionally have a 20-year patent life, right? If yeah. simple terms, if you spend 15 years developing the drug, companies have five years to kind of make all their money back, which leads to a yeah. bunch of different things, right? Higher drug prices, uh, a bunch of things that are difficult for them, right? Now, let's say you can bring that 15 years down to 10. They now have 10 years of patent life, which means they have can sell the drug for longer. Um, they means they can, you know, it becomes more valuable for companies. It can help patients quicker, right? So that's five years extra where the patients are actually getting a drug that can be helpful. 
Um, it allows companies to reinvest those on kind of promising areas, right? So for instance, rather than 15 years on, you know, drugs can always be improved. So rather than spending 15 years version spending on version one, um, you can spend 10 years working on version two, one and getting right side on version two right after or some new discoveries. Yeah. So it just generally improves the pace of scientific innovation and patient care. Um, so I think there's benefits across the world. And then of course, just the simple monetary benefit of every year the drug is spent in development, you are paying scientists, experimental studies, right? Like not only yeah. are you spending costs and resources waiting, but it's also like, that's an expensive process, right? A clinical trial can cost a hundred million dollars. If a clinical trial goes on longer, that's even more money you're spending. So any way you can shorten this process down, either in the preclinical or the clinical stage can just not only help the companies, but have huge effects on the patients and communities as well. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the, the fascinating thing about your website right now is that you've got so many partners who are in perhaps the drug discovery, perhaps development world. Why wouldn't you discover the I guess perhaps targets yourself and try to bring those compounds to, uh, to, to life yourself, apart from it being exorbitantly expensive. Yeah, so short answer is we're actually doing that now, right? Like we're doing a bit of both. We're working with partners, but we also have our own in-house programs that we fully own and developing. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's, it's really interesting because of course we have some things we're really excited about that we're developing, but we also know that we can't possibly develop everything. So that's what we're working with partners. So. I think you're exactly, there's, there's, the answer is why we're not is there's no reason why we're not, we are doing it. Um, it's just thinking about where we can spend resources, specifically as a small company, right? Like we can't possibly develop 20 different drug discovery programs. Maybe we can have one or two and as we grow, maybe that can change. Um, but we're saying these are two that we're really focusing our internal efforts on, but we also want to work in these areas through partnerships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean. We, we've talked a lot about the whole drug discovery process, forming partnerships, being able to define which drug candidates you're going to try to bring to life, uh, on your own versus in partnerships. What part of like, what part of these tasks lies under your role as CEO and how well prepared did you feel to be the CEO and, and co-founder of a company such as this by being in the PhD space? Yeah, the short answer is I don't think any, um, no startup founder will ever feel fully prepared. And I think that's kind of the, the, like, it's just the world we have to live in, right? Cause like you're going after something new, right? Like uh, most startups are inherently going after new problems and something new yeah. in that area. So there's no, there's no playbook you're going after, right? You can try and understand as much as you can, right? You can say, like, I understand the science or if it's a tech startup, I understand the software, the business, whatever, um, and kind of prepare yourself. but. Any startup founder who's like, I feel fully prepared for everything is probably lying to you. Um, now, I think the science aspect gave me a really interesting area, right? Like anyone coming from a science background, like what a PhD really teaches you at the end of the day is how to, you know, creatively think about and analyze problems. Um, so what we're able to do is I felt very prepared to kind of come in and say, Hey, you know what? Like, this is a problem I'm really interested in. I'm really going to solve this. And I feel like I'm confident about how to understand this and develop it a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. so that's something I always felt very prepared to do and something I'm, you know, never was worried about. Now, mm -hmm. um, what another area could be is that's like, I feel like I understand the science well, right? Like I, I comfortable talking to a scientific team, kind to a scientific audience. Um, and that's an area where the PhD has been very helpful. Uh, yeah. but also I think some PhDs and what a PhD has been useful for is like, 
specifically in a PhD like mine, like I got a chance to work with so many interdisciplinary people. I got a chance to work with oncologists, data scientists, you know, biochemists. And that's really what a startup founder's job is, is you're trying to communicate across many different teams, right? The business team, the engineering team, the science team, the finance team. Um, so like that sort of collaborative aspect is something I'm very thankful that I got a chance to experience during my PhD. Um, but like I said, I think there's no one path to becoming a startup founder, right? There's a lot of founders who have PhD experience, specifically in biotech, a lot who come out of kind of traditional more business development or finance experience, some who come straight out of, of software engineering and programming. I think you just have to acknowledge where your strengths are and trying to build a team around you to fill in the gaps that you have in your own strengths. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess, would you advise someone, or if you could go back, would you tell yourself to go back and gain expertise in more fields, so you're able to communicate more effectively across different disciplines, or would you keep the same cards that you have in terms of working with data as well as cancer so that you're able to most effectively address those two key areas, uh, before bringing on team to address the different other areas, which you may not have as much expertise in. I think it really just depends on the type of founder or the type of role you want, right? I can imagine for some people, it makes a ton of sense to take this, um, for lack of a better word, uh, like more generalist approach where they're like, okay, I'm going to kind of work across multiple different areas. I'm going to try and learn a little bit about everything. I think that's very helpful. Some founders kind of like to be very specialized. They're saying like, I'm going to work in this very specialized field. I'm going to kind of really understand the ins and outs of this very, very well, and I'm going to be the best at this one thing. So I think it really just depends. I think I, you know, I think as a PhD, you're always going to be a little bit specialized. And I think that's just kind of the nature of the game. Um, and that's completely fine. I think I have no regrets about that. Um, so I don't know if I would say if I went back, if I would try and do a little bit more of everything, I think I always would recommend that just to experience a little bit more of the world and everyone who's getting a PhD or any career, I was like, learn and experience as much as you can. But if you're asking whether I would focus less on the science to focus more on anything, I think the answer is no, I would just try and learn a little bit more alongside it. Um, but I think for me, I was always very interested in like a very specialized problem and a very specialized role. So it worked well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, th this last question here is perhaps one that, you know, I, I don't know much about, so correct me if I'm wrong, but, um, on your website, again, you've worked with both institutional in terms of educational institu uh, institutions, as well as corporate partners. What's the difference between the two? And would you advise perhaps you yourself to go back and, uh, you know, stack up on working with one versus the other at an early stage uh, of one, three? Yeah, I think the short answer, I think you have to do both. Um, okay. You know, I think like, uh, academic partners, you have a lot more freedom is maybe a simple way to think about it. Like, like they have different incentives, to, incentive structure. They just have different things they're trying to work towards. Right? like, mm -hmm. um, an academic partner is going to allow you to, you know, answer problems. There's not as much focus on budgets necessarily, there is, but like, it's a little less focus on the business side of things, you know, um, and I think that's really cool. Whereas I think business partners have um, a little bit more follow through, for instance, especially if you're working on clinical projects, right? You know, if you want to work on a phase three clinical trial, a pharma company who's running hundreds of those is going to have much more reach than a single professor in a single academic lab who might be working on one. Um, in the ideal partnership, you'd love to have a little bit of both. You'd have to work at a pharma company and at an academic institution or research institution, kind of a three-way partnership. But I think for anyone, 
Um, starting off, it's probably important to have a bit of both. I would just say, if you're really looking at the startup space, you probably need to, at a certain point, venture more industry, right? Because they're going to be the people who, at the end of the day, are going to be working with you, using your services, funding you. So the sooner you can understand that side of the world, um, the better. Mm -hmm. All right. And I, I think we're running close on time. So before we go, do you have any pluggables that you like to plug, Neil? Yeah, no, of course, right? Uh, thank you guys for having me, right? Like for anyone more interested, more in what we're doing at 1.3, um, our website is www.13.bio. We're on Twitter at 13 Biotech and my personal Twitter is at Neil Maduka, N-E-E-L-M-A-T-H-U-K-A-R. Um, feel free to check us out. Shoot me an email if there's anything I can do to help. Um, or if you have any questions, we are um, always hiring. So anyone looking for positions, full-time internship consultant, please hit me up and I'm looking forward to chatting with them. Awesome. And you can find us, How It's Med, at, at How It's Med on Twitter, as well as at howitsmed.com uh, on the interwebs. And looking forward to chatting with y'all soon.